You're listening to The Promise of Personalized Medicine, brought to you by AccessDX. This is a show for the lab professionals and medical directors who bring forward novel diagnostic tests to advance modern medicine. Let's dive into the conversation. Thanks for joining the podcast, Matt. As you know, the podcast is totally focused on how do we all work together to try to get personalized medicine adopted here in the United States. So I want to thank you again for joining us because I know it's been you've been doing your part for many years uh, with various technologies and various companies. So thank you very much. It's a pleasure. I appreciate the opportunity to have this dialogue and, and couldn't agree more that we can all do more together to improve personalized medicine, especially as you think of patients as being your your mom, your sister, or your, your brother. That's right. So let's just start by defining personalized medicine. So so for yourself, what makes you wake up in the morning and, and, and what do you think the good definition of personalized medicine is? Being in oncology, personalized medicine is actually finding a, a treatment pattern and a path for your cancer that you have from your diagnosis through curative treatment or whatever it may be. And that to me, and being in the, the, the space that we're in with NGS testing is actually knowing what cancer and what mutations that your cancer has. And if there's any targeted therapies or if you're a candidate for immunotherapy or such, and if neither of those are options to throw the book at the chemo and you know, that's your, your third option there. So to me, personalized medicine is actually treating the cancer for that individual patient by doing the appropriate diagnostic tests up front. And I don't know if you know this, Matt, but that's why I'm really interested in this field because my dad died at 71 of glioblastoma. And selfishly, I just thought, you know what, one day I'm going to need personalized medicine and I just want it to be available ever since I've just tried to do my part, just like you are. So thank you. So when you take a look, and I know that you've been doing this uh, like I have for more than 10 years, but in the last 10 years, what type of advancements have you seen that you know we've made to help deliver on the promise of personalized medicine diagnostics? So I think the the testing, the entire drug space itself has vastly improved over the past 10 years since my days back at the at the company that did stage two breast cancer testing. The technology's there, the drugs are following. I think the advancements in AI and hearing that they actually have a drug through the FDA now that was AI designed is very encouraging. Again, though, even with technology and even with the advancements in drugs, if more patients aren't tested and there's still 40 to 50% of patients not being tested, it doesn't matter how advanced we get because of the misaligned incentives from healthcare systems and physicians and such. And that's why the more companies that we have out there doing this improves overall testing for patients. So I think technology's there, the drugs are there. It's now just putting all those together and being able to get them to the right patients at the right time. I would think that if you ask the various folks, various stakeholders, if you will, you know, their definition of personalized medicine would probably be pretty similar to what we discussed. There, I, I believe the majority of those people will say, yeah, we're all for personalized medicine. Let, let's go for it. But then you brought up misaligned incentives, and that has been a challenge. <laughs> so can you tell me more about, like, what have you seen as far as those misaligned incentives and how they're 
how it's being detrimental, quite frankly. The first problem with the misaligned incentives is the payer itself and the mindset that they have when they look at a test that costs $5,000. They're not looking at the drugs that they're appropriately used or the drugs that we can avoid like immunotherapy uh, by knowing a patient's you know, genotyping. They're looking at the cost of the test. So that itself needs to change in the mindset. And then you have the evolution of the LBM since 2016 or so, where they just exploded. They have the right intent, but still, the more tests that they deny and not prior off, the less the payer has to pay. So it looks good on them that they're doing a good job for the payer. So I think that's where we've been able to collaborate with the LBMs and the payers to show them that if they align their incentives the right way, looking at drug itself, the patients themselves are the ones that benefit but the payers do at the bottom line from the dollar saved. So I think it's it's really us working together, working with organizations like yourself that give us access to physicians and other policymakers that, you know, during COVID, we learned that access was, was cut off completely. So we did things virtually. Well, now we're having to retrain them to get back in front of them. It's, it's definitely something that's it's improving. But again, someone asked me many years ago, who's your biggest competition? And the answer to that is it's the under genotyping that's occurring right now. It's not any, you know, foundation or Keras or Tempest or any of those. It's under genotyping is the biggest competition. That's right. And if I hear any more, read any more white papers about the overutilization of lab tests, <laughs> I get it. Does everyone need to have 10 vitamin D tests? We really are not doing as many tests as we should for those individuals that will greatly benefit from it. And I don't know the solution to that, quite frankly, but it is, it is a definite challenge. Yeah, I think, you know, as you talk about the vitamin D test and, and other tests, when we go to our primary care physician each year for our annual physical, I think we have to be more informed as, a, as an individual and as a patient. And we have to actually be more prescriptive of what we want done instead of here's my blood pressure check, my chem panels, how's my weight doing? Don't drink alcohol, eat better. And that's essentially what they do. And I think we have to become more informed as a society. And I think we are having the tools that will enable, you know, the, the average person to be able to participate a little bit more in their healthcare that will help drive the adoption for sure. But, but the thought of, and the other part, I always make a joke, like if, if I was smart, I'd go back to pharma because they have it easy, right? They get approval and everyone has to pay. And a lot of the folks are spending all their time on what I would say is the two, three, $4,000 test and try to prevent the test from being done. I'm like, yeah, but you're paying $100,000 for that therapy because you have to, quite frankly, right? So what have we done wrong as an industry? where we cannot overcome that. I, I, I truly believe that we have not done a good job as an industry to promote the, there is no such thing as personalized medicine without a diagnostic test to inform us, right? So why are we, we've allowed them to devalue that test or those tests? You know, I think it's probably a multi-pronged approach that is, has been misguided. If you look at the main labs that have the, the power and the ability to influence legislation, as you mentioned there, you have to pay for a drug that's FDA approved, that's on label, that meets the requirements, but you don't have to pay for the mechanism in which you know what patient's appropriate for that drug. Um, so that in itself, I think, is probably a lobby that's, that's been missed because the larger labs 
don't have an incentive. They're not more of a specialized, personalized medicine type lab, the way some of the, the esoteric labs like we are. So I think that's one miss. And the other thing that's that's encouraging is the American Cancer Society, the Longevities and those advocacy groups out there are really pounding that drum and they're helping bring that awareness that the right test is is the most appropriate way to start the, the treatment path. So I don't know as far as what we have done. I know it's not worked. What we can do, though, is to bring more of these CDX conversations. So if you've got a companion diagnostic, surely we can agree that the test itself should be covered. And we're starting to see that with some of the major the national payers just as this year. Yeah, that's a great point. I do see that as being a major positive in the last decade where the CDX is, it's commonplace now for payers to, to cover those, whereas before it wasn't. So that, that's great. Let me ask you, as an industry or as companies, what are like three mistakes or a few mistakes that you've seen companies in the past make when they're launching these, what, I, what we call novel diagnostic tests, right? First of all, setting internal expectations appropriately is how I would answer the first one. You have to have a, a path. You have to treat it like a marathon, not like a sprint. So your internal customer is one of your biggest ones that you have to convince that the evidence still needs to build. You need your AVCV and CU especially. It needs to be in, in multi-publication facet. With They're still going to pull coals, but the, the best you can to create a study that's not driven by yourself. And second one being, I think the evidence itself needs to be, you can drive adoption, you can get people to order it. The evidence needed for that is much different than the evidence needed to get the payers to cover it. And then through that process of the internal expectations and and the evidence development, I think you have to find partners willing to analyze the data and not just, you know, look at a paper and say it's good. We never had success by sending anything through an inbox and hoping for the best. That was one of the most failed strategies that could ever be out there. So I think the third one is actually finding partners and that partnership, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of relationship build. It takes a lot of patience. It's nasty. So you brought up Matt working with partners. So how do you think we as an industry can work better with health plans? Because I know everyone wants to work with a health plan and do a pilot and everything like that. And personal opinion is a lot of health plans will say, you know, that's not my business is to help you. But if you can get somebody to come alongside to help at least pilot, test, coordinate, whatever you want, get the data that they want, right? So you're not running down the wrong pathway. So what's, what's a good way for industry to do that to, by working with uh, health plans? Well, I think the change from 10 to 12 years ago was that you could use to, to get a KOL or two and, and go to the health plan and have them advocate with you on your behalf. In today's world, that doesn't work anymore. I think it's being able to identify the right partner at the health plan. They could be on pharmacy side, they could be on the medical side, or they could be an LVM that works together with them. But it's being able to 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 go in with a very clear message and be able to go in and not not waste anyone's time. So have your evidence package ready to go. Have your KOLs to know what market you're, you're using and, and who's using your test and how they're using it. Be able to demonstrate the utility of your assays and not wasting their time. So that to, to me is it's finding the right partners. It's, it's having the right messaging. It's being very strategic with your entire approach. 
and having a plan and what the outcome of that plan looks like for the payer and for for us. Right. That's great. And I, I hear companies go down the wrong road of, I call it, they fall in love with their science and that they're trying to convince, you know, the health plan, how good their test is. And I understand that you have to, to a certain degree, explain the differences in, in the data because data doesn't speak for itself. You have to give a voice to the data, right? And I'm not opposed to that, but I see companies going down the road of to going too much into the science and not speaking the health plan's language. And I think that is a is a, an issue that we can all uh, learn from, quite frankly. I 100% agree. The science is one thing. Comparing it to the current standard of care and the way a payer looks at it is another. So you actually have to do a lot of investment and time and research into what they consider the current standard of care is based on their current policies. It could be something that, you know, is, is an old mindset of the CMO that still runs policy decisions at the end of the day. But I, I do agree. The science itself is very important. But it's how it's used in the current environment of whether it's oncology or whatever it is, that's the most important and your ability to articulate that. Yeah, yeah. When we talk about the science and the data and personalized medicine and health plans, I mean, do you think health plans want to adopt and move forward with personalized medicine? I think they're, they're, they're intrigued by it. Um, and if you can show them enough of that carrot from, let's say, a drug savings or at least identifying those patients that should or shouldn't be on the right therapies that cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, then the conversation starts. It's their ability to actually implement it with their current policies of, you know, lab benefit management and, and internal politics that they have to be able to execute. So it's, it's a yes and no question or yes and no answer is how I'd say it. And the more that you can speak their language and find something that, uh, you know, their win, right? Um, and if the, if the win is big enough for them, quite frankly. Exactly. Yep. And we touched upon this a little bit earlier. My contention is that I don't think we've done a good job as an industry as a whole to kind of create the value of our personalized medicine diagnostics. What's your view on that? So the value itself is is so skewed by all the things that get in the way. Back in the day, you could have a standard of care assay like an Oncotype DX, and everybody knew it, everybody trusted it. And then, you know, the competition started rolling in and the value was at least depleted a little bit because of the competition. In today's world, there's so many tests that have value. It's just the way that they're looked at. Again, back to the $5,000 test that is still shielding you or helping you identify a $100,000 drug, that's still not aligned. Some of that has to do with the pharmacy versus medical benefit and how some of the ASO clients get that money back to their employer groups that are managing and then they're self-funded. So that part, uh, so once you get to you know an employer that's more educated, then they can go back and more and do a lot more dictation of what they want from their health plan and how they want them to manage it. So I think it kind of that back to the, you going to your doctor and being educated, the employers are becoming more educated and being able to be more prescriptive with what they want from the, their health plans. So I think it's that whole total partnership. We can't just say, I'm going to turn my lives over to you and I hope you do the best you can and manage it. It just doesn't work that way anymore. It's too complex. 
I once was talking with a group of employers and I, and I, and I said payers and they corrected me and said, Perry, we are the payer, right? Now I call them the elusive payer because um, we all want to get in front of these mega employers as diagnostic innovators, right? But it's very difficult to get in front of them. Um, and there's only, I would say, a handful, maybe 20, you know, large employers that really can and do, you know, manage their benefits in a way in which they are dictating, you know, to their health plan who's just doing ASO and like, hey, I want to cover for this test. Um, and it has to be big enough in cancer and oncology. It's big enough, right? They're always interested to know how to take care of their employees better. But in other areas, that's just not the case. We started an initiative many years ago that that went directly to employers. And what we found is they had an appetite to listen and they really thought it was a really good idea. They didn't have any actual incident of cancer related to the type of testing that we do. So we could never get them to go ahead and bite and actually implement anything. So I found it interesting uh, that there was it was the messaging was good. The, the concept, all of it made sense. They, it wasn't aligned with their HR benefit plans and, and what they were doing for their employees. And it just wasn't something their CFO or their you know top executives would sign off on. Now, cancer screening on the other side of it is it's very different. Um, there, it's a different kind of incentive. They look at it more as a benefit, something that is more attractive to to bring more employees in. That's right. And what's interesting are the uh, mega employers that are doing a lot of that. They're they're the younger that they have younger population too, right? It's not the caterpillars of the world, right? Where the average age is fifty eight, right? And they need it. Right, it's the Amazons of the world. Yeah, the Metas of the world are not your population for cancer screening or or the advanced oncology uh, diagnostics yeah. as well. Agreed. Yeah, but they can. Yeah, but they can afford it, and quite frankly, it's a benefit that their associates want Meta to have for them. So it's interesting. You know, that's a good example as far as finding the benefit, if you will, to an employer or even to a health plan. So, as a health plan. What do you think the value of personalized medicine is? Is it really, like you said earlier, the connection of like, well, if I can reduce unnecessary drug costs here, that's a no-brainer for me. I'm moving quicker than if uh, this diagnostic test doesn't really lower cost over here, but it might be additive in nature. I think that's that's a concern that health plans generally have. I totally agree. I think it's aligning the incentives of those that make policy is is the key thing. It is the goal to follow something like a CMS and, and if Medicare approves it, how far behind should we? Or do they look at Medicare as uh, and some of the MACs out there as way off the reservation and they cover things they shouldn't? I think that all starts with the incentive and the, the way that the medical policy people write policy. And as you've said before with the LBMs, Health plans love to outsource everything. So if you look at it, I mean, there's only a few health plans now that do their own policy creation. Yep. Most of them go ahead and outsource it to an LBM. The interesting thing is when they switch from LBM to LBM, what the disruption is in that in the in their population when that happens. Right. We're we're seeing that live right now, right? With one of the big boys kind of taking it inside, trying to do it their own, where they had 
you know, another vendor do it, their policies, and it, it it's chaos. It's not working. Which just struggle of getting appropriately paid that much more, and I think that goes to your you know misaligned incentives too. It's in the best interest either not to pay or to delay payment. I mean that's just the reality. And if 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 you have to wait ninety days, one hundred and twenty days, I don't think they're too concerned about that. Oh, they're they're not at all. And <laughs> and what we're learning on that side of it is we can be told from them all day long that that PA's processed and it's and we're waiting on response. And in fact, the PA was denied because of one thing or another. But I think that's probably the other part, kind of going back to one of your original questions, which is what three things can you do? I think I'd add a fourth one to that. And that is to make sure that your reimbursement team and your managed care or market access team are separate. You've got your outward facing team that that works and focuses on policymaking and your other team that works in the background that does all the billing and the claims and processing and appeals. They need to be aligned, but you need a separate shop and that shop needs to be strong and you need to be using the right codes in the most transparent way possible. We're advocates in PLA codes because it's, it's very visible and you can see what's happening with them. Payers seem to like that as well. But there's some little nuances that if they're not listed on CFLF the right way, they can't load them in the system because it's not fully priced. So it's little nuances that create challenge, but the reimbursement strategy and the the managed care outward facing strategy, they have to be aligned, but they're two very different functions. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that goes to the next question. Our last question is, you know, what are a couple of changes that health plans can make to help facilitate the adoption of personalized medicine, Matt? And and one, you know, that I'll throw in is like you mentioned, PLA codes. Well, accept PLA codes, first of all, and not just to copy and paste and call and claim that they're all, you know, experimental investigational. Right. I think that would go a long way with being able to appropriately identify ourselves. This is my test which is what they want, but then accept the PLA codes and, and not throw them all underneath the bus. What, what are a couple of changes that you think health plans should make? So I think what you said there with the PLA codes, one is to cover something, but if they use the coding as a way not to actually have to pay for it, then why did you cover it? So that's definitely a method that they've used. And I think as you, as you consider the reimbursement path, they use a prior authorization because they think the test costs too much. I'm still looking and waiting for payers to become more creative with their prior authorizations when it comes to immunotherapy or uh, chemotherapy. It seems, you know, because we had one many years ago tell us, oh, yeah, we, we require the physician to check a box on, did you do a testing for immunotherapy? And I said, well, what test did you have them use? Well, we didn't ask that. We just said, did you have a test done? Well, we don't know if that test was qualified to check for the appropriate markers to get immunotherapy or not. They just had them check a box. So it's actually inspecting it a little further, being having more ownership in that. And that was actually one of the payers that had more of an innovative approach. And then they got rid of that whole department. So they're doing nothing now. Back to your question, what can you do? You're navigating this web that we have, and you just have to keep fighting because there's patients out there that are not being tested. And that's what our mission is. So we're, we're staying true to the task and we recognize the challenges ahead, but we're going to keep fighting. That, that's great. And it goes back to what you said earlier with having good internal expectations within the corporation, because this is definitely a marathon. And I would say this is probably an ultra marathon. 
because when companies think that they're going to establish coverage and get appropriate reimbursement situated in a matter of a couple of years, I always like to ask, well, show me who's done that. I mean, I really want to know, but no one's done that. But no one wants to hear that it's going to take six, seven years. And therein lies the challenge, but it's worth it. I, I appreciate you continue to, to fight the fight on behalf of you know the industry and your company. And for all of us, quite frankly, just making sure that personalized medicine takes place. So, well, thanks, Matt, for joining us today and sharing your experience and your ideas about how we can continue as an industry to move forward with personalized medicine. Really appreciate uh, everything that you're doing and uh, look forward to continued success. Thank you, Perry. Appreciate the opportunity, your partnership for the different companies that you have and that uh, you just continuing to fight. So thank you for your time and I look forward to, to hearing this in future podcasts. Just to let everyone know, we are going to have a diagnostic conference uh, event September 28th in Manhattan Beach, California, where we'll bring industry leaders like Matt together and we're going to bring the health plan folks and LBM representatives to the occasion also where we can ask, have live Q&A sessions with a, with a panel of medical directors. Because I truly believe that these individuals, like Matt said earlier, they want it to take place. They're sometimes struggling internally with how to exactly do it. And I think the more that as an industry, we can come alongside these individuals and one, talk their language and two, demonstrate that we're good partners, that we can uh, make headway. So look forward to seeing you all there. Thanks again. You've been listening to The Promise of Personalized Medicine, produced by Amplify Podcasts and original music by Jake Demas. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player. And if you like what you've heard, we would love to hear from you with a rating or a review. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <laughs>